I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. So a lot of times we start these interviews uh, at the very beginning and talk about people's first experiences with wine. But I thought it might be interesting uh, with you uh, to talk about something you've been doing recently, which is your uh, your new wine release, something that you collaborated in and saw to fruition. Now you have wine and bottle with your name on it uh, out in the market. And I thought I might ask you uh, how that came about and um, if you could tell us a little bit more about it. Um, well, it's actually something which was growing in my head since quite a while. And I think I came from a wine trip back and I was totally inspired. And, and I this was, was to Austria. That was actually, no, I came oddly enough, I came from Argentina. You came from Argentina. I came from Argentina and I, for some odd reason, I was thinking about making a wine, a Grüner in Argentina because I thought it wow. would be possible. But it's like a Werner Herzog movie. You're yeah, like, you know. know. It's something revolutionary, but yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought maybe I'm not too Che Guevara enough, you know, to go right, to, right, go right. to do that. Even though I was fascinated by Argentina, but I talked to a, to Gerhard Kracher. You know, we sure. met in Queens. Who's a you know the family is a towering history and the presence of Austrian wine. A lot of people who uh, were subsequently imported into Wachau ascribe the Kraher and Alwa Kraher as being the introduction to their American importer. I think Alois Kraher, you know, when you go a little bit back to Austrian wine and, and see, understand a little bit Austrian wine, Austrian wine was always very well established until 1985 sure, I understand. Uh, when the wine scandal happened. Which was a terrible thing because a couple of co-ops, uh, you know, cheated on wine. Yeah. Uh, the problem on that was, uh, you know, the small little growers kind of got also in that vacuum and get, got pulled down. They did. And did, although they didn't do anything, you know, they made sure. wine like they did uh, 30, 40 years ago. Just there was no sales all of a sudden. There was just nothing, you know, yeah. it was basically like the economy crisis. Suddenly yeah. everything went downhill. Um, it's kind of like the Tylenol scandal when the Tylenol was yeah. altered. And now... The good thing for that is, and I think the wine scandal had also a good side on it because it changed also the market totally. People suddenly start drinking instead of three bottles, they spent the same amount of money on one bottle, but good quality. So people bought up, but less. Bought up, yeah, but you know, f- concentrate what they were drinking and, w- and they were start reading a little bit. Is that because of the stigma attached to the cheaper wines that were altered? 
Mm, exactly. And everybody drank off dry fruity wines. Uh, oh. All kind of this uh, Moscat, Moscat Rotonel, uh, sure. Spätlese, kind of that was kind of the whole trick. So this is the reason why you, you'll find not often the Spätlese on label, Austrian wine labels. Sure. Because that's always has this kind of negative um, karma still back on there. It's funny when you go back to the 80s and you drink Austrian wines, how, you know, you do see Cabinet uh, on a label like you would in a German wine, which you would now. And sometimes they're just sweeter than you would expect, like the actual wines. I remember I had a, an old Brundemeyer and I went to a table and I was like, yeah, you'll love this wine. It's hard to find Brundemeyer with age. And we opened it up and it was so sweet. Yeah. And I wasn't expecting that because his wines today are usually quite dry. And it took me by surprise. And we, you know, we had to get the guy a different wine. Cause, well, uh, yes. I mean, Austrian had a fairly similar structure that in Germany, but, uh, the 80s were also exceptional years too. Sure, I mean, in terms of ripeness. If you take 84 and 87 out, but uh, I mean, it just had lately some 83 knolls. Yeah, and that's in fact and, what it was, was I an mean, 83 Brunemar. Yeah, and, and now I had the Leubenberg from Knoll, uh, a cabinet, and you know what? Sure. I was initially was a little afraid how the, the wine might be dead. Yeah. But the wine was just fantastic. Yeah, I've had uh, great FX Peakler from uh, that era as well. And... The 80s were great wine years, you know. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, if you get hands on today. Overshadowed by the scandal. In totally. Way. Might be, a, in a way, a buying opportunity. Which is good for now, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to get hands back. on, if you get hands on. But the ins uh, getting back on Kracher, I think Kracher, Alice Kracher, was at that day, you know, in 1986, when one of the, uh, Austria got a new wine law and one of the strictest and firmest wine laws. He came around where basically the whole market went away from sweet wine. He said, he said, we are great in sweet wine and we need to make sweet wine and I'm going to go 100% in my family uh, company. And, you know, that's a bold move to do. No doubt. Uh, and he did. And uh, four years later, basically Wine Spectator uh, and Robert Parker discovered basically and scored him very high. And from yeah, then on, the success. High. I mean, high 90s, 100 point scores even. And I mean, it was pretty from then on, the success story was basically there because suddenly Austria had again attention. Was he always in one? I feel like at one point he was a chef. Is that true? No, he was basically in chemical uh, industry. Oh, okay. And uh, but still, even his grandfather, you know, when you go back to way back, uh, they weren't winemakers because they were only partly. And normally in Burgenland, in that area, they had you know corn. Sure. They were mixed farmers, mixed farmers, you know. Yeah. And even. Krachers, uh, Alois Krachers, uh, basically the grandfather, said also, I don't, I just want to make wine because we're good on that. And, and to some extent, this is, you know, your homeland too. I mean, you're originally from Austria. So. I'm originally from Austria, but, you know, now I'm eight years in America. Sure. Uh, right now I have difficulties a little bit because, uh, yeah, I still think Austrian, but I still I already can think in American way. So here and there have a little cultural clashes in what my brain. What are some examples of that? Uh, <laughs> Look, when we come over, um, our jokes are not funny. Yeah, and mine neither. <laughs> and I've been here a long time. Yeah. But uh, look, it goes the other way around too. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But you talk. To you know, I'm a smash hit in Austria. When I go, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I have stand-up gigs booked for days. I mean, they love me in Austria. Yeah, but uh, you know. I just flew in from the Wachau, and boy, are my arms tired. You know, it's, you it's, go there, it's you sit down with friends, you know, and suddenly they tell you. It's supposed to be funny. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I saw a really famous comedian do that once over dinner. He told a joke and no one, none of his friends laughed. And it wasn't me. It was a famous guy. He's been on like Saturday Night Live and stuff. And then he had to tell him 
that that was a joke and I was like this is the mark of the decline of this man's career so, like you were popular and funny at one time and now you are no longer funny because it's dinner and these people are not laughing so and therefore you know, that's basically what you experience immediately there <laughs> but <laughs> um, no but I think um, of course man it, would, it made sense going to Austria and with Gerhard Krach I talked uh, and he said to me let's do it together yeah Let's make a wine. I said, actually, great. That's a great idea. And we talked right away at that uh, dinner what we did not want to make. Yeah, I'd we love to hear that. that. What was the philosophy of what you didn't want to make? Because uh, we felt that right away we want to do Grüner Veltliner. You did. That's Native the signature variety of Austria. I think it's in America the most established variety with no doubt. Sure. Even though I think Rieslings can be very pretty. With other indigenous varieties like Zierfandler, Rotgipfel, which can be very interesting. Mm-hmm. Also, red varieties like Brau Frankish, which getting more and more into yeah. the American market or trickle more into it. Uh, and especially with 09, the vintage, which is really, really strong. Uh, that being said, um, we said Grunewellin, it has to be. Uh, we did not want to have botrytis, meaning the noble rot, which makes the wines very often a little clunky, too high in alcohol. Sure. So we you were looking for clean fruit. We were looking for precision, and we defined right away what about the best white areas in the world. And we came straight into Burgundy, of course. Mm-hmm. And we looked also what kind of, how do they make wine? Yeah. What's the angle? And we defined also in which area we wanted to go. Now, we turned out, we turned down right away Wachau, Kremstal, Kamtal. The major, which are major, areas. yeah. I mean, people really are we turned known that down. For making Gruner in those areas. Exactly, and we defined we wanted to go to the Weinviertel. Okay. And the reason why we didn't want to go to the Wachau and to those uh, main areas had a couple of reasons were there. First one was um, everybody can make wine there. This sounds now very arrogant, but it's not meant that way. Mm-hmm. We wanted to have a challenge. We wanted to do something new, a little yeah. revolutionary sure. too. And... The second thing is we would have been on power and on richness. Yeah. And we didn't care for that. Got it. Uh, we cared for finesse and still power. Yeah. Uh, and what about price point? Has that allowed you to kind of hit the price point you were looking for? Would you have been pushed higher if you'd been in some of the more classic areas? To tell you the truth, we came into the Weinviertel and that was right away there because we saw, um, first of all, we get the vineyards which we wanted. We, yeah. get, we got old wine vineyards. We oh, had to use a super str- important. Yeah, that was key. Yeah, uh, we used the straw man though because we were afraid that people not the certain farmers might not give us the vineyards. Got it. And we had no idea, you know, how first of all because you're not from the area. No, not so at all. There might be a little bit of resistance. Oh, to totally. Yeah. Um, so we used the straw man, which turned out to be just fine. So you used an intermediary. You mean? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We say, is it straw man? Well, See, that's Austrian joke yeah, again. It's well, supposed to be funny. Well, that's because they make a lot of straw wine there yeah. for, for straw men. And actually, Kraher makes a straw wine with uh, Mr. K. Straw Mr. K. Wine. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, straw, straw man here is usually like a, an argument uh, debate technique. Uh, really? Okay. Yeah, like you're making up a guy that doesn't exist that has very polarized views. So it carries a little bit more weight, I guess, here. So basically we heavy straw. Yeah. So we used some guy basically to to get the vineyards. Yeah. And we rented the vineyard. That was important to us. We didn't purchase the grapes because so we could kind of control the grower yeah. a little bit, even though we got very, very lucky there. Because you ran into some good growers. We rented a great we had it's two vineyards basically. They were basically almost right next to each other. The one is 35, the other one is 45 year old. It's less than hectare, which is less than 
how much acres is that? I'm still a metric guy. Uh, two and a half an acres, acre, right? Yeah, it's less than two acres. Um, so, but they're based on pure limestone. That's unusual for yeah. the because normally you find in the yeah, Bahá'í of Nace, right. um, you don't get much limestone there, or you get uh, to gravelly or to less parts, you know, when you go more to the Vagram. So was that kind of, you know, you mentioned Burgundy before. Uh, Were that you was for looking us, for limestone? Yes, because yeah, limestone brings always freshness, uh, pristine fruit, and also lace, you know, um, as an Austrian, you're never afraid of acid. Yeah. Um, and we looked for that. Got it. And it's a very south-facing vineyard, so you bring a lot of power, a lot of concentration on. And we, once we tasted the previous wine, which the winemaker made, and he didn't care, basically, you know, he harvested it, he fermented it, and in January, he filled it right away, right after fermentation. And on a style of wine like that, we still were experiencing minerality. Got it. So the terroir is speaking terroir through, was even there with winemaking that was deleterious to that. The winemaking was terrible. Yeah. But uh, we still were, got the... Got the finesse of that vineyard, the terroir. What do you and think about Gruner Veltliner as a grape variety? Like, um, what would you say about it? It seems to me like there can be so many different expressions, maybe because of where it's grown or who's making it. You see maybe a lot of variety. Maybe you see with Chardonnay too. It's just that maybe because Gruner Veltliner is a little bit more foreign in a way that we don't quite have the same handle on it. I did in the past tastings, or in the, uh, went into tastings where they compared Chardonnays to Gruner Veltliner. Yeah. Also with age. And I mean, there are slightly differences uh, without a doubt, but they can get very close. I see. So and that's also why we had our angle on there. Uh, we knew that. That we it could be experience. one of the great white wines It could be. World. Now, we didn't want to make, you know, uh, Grunewitlina, which tastes like Chardonnay. Yeah. Uh, we still wanted to keep the characteristics of it. Sure. Now, which, what would you say those are? You know... I can tell you, Grunewaldina is a very broad range. It's yeah. like when you talk about Riesling. Yeah. Riesling can be bone dry in yeah. a very entry-level uh, light way. Yeah. They can be off dry. They can be also too sweet wine. Grunewaldina has a similar range. Do you feel like any of that's clonal? Like in the way that people talk about Sangiovese, like, oh, here's Sangiovese Grosso, or here's what we you know, use for uh, you know, Vino Nobile. That kind of thing. Uh, do you feel like there's clonal issues with Gruner? Do you, f- you feel like, in other words, what I'm asking is, everyone growing the same grape? I would answer that a little different. Uh, I think, and I'm quoting right now Piero and Chisa. Sure. And he mentioned in a seminar, you know, all this clo- clonal uh, conversation that's borderlines for him communism. Uh-huh. Uh, because he says, look, the clone is important, but look, just, uh, and that was the time when. Uh, when Osama bin Laden got killed, unless you send a it's seed, weird. unless you send. When I think of Gruner, it's not the first name that comes to mind. But. No, but when it's like when they talk about this clonal uh, kind of conversation, yeah. he said, unless you know, it's it's not possible unless you send a seal team in with two combat helicopters and take in you know, an overnight thing the whole uh, vineyard Latash out uh-huh. and transfer it, uh, you know, in his place to Argentina and put uh-huh. it in place and think you're gonna make Latash. Right, you will right, notice right. you will fail dramatically. Sure. Uh, because it's just not possible. Um, now, it was actually very funny because the whole audience was just in tears of laughing. But this is the Austrian thing coming through right uh, now. No, he was Italian. See, no, I'm talking Pierre about you. Italian. <laughs> coming off more serious. Than, uh. <laughs> no, but <laughs> totally, probably, yeah. But um, I think the clonal part is very often a little bit uh, brought too I much Because I can hear the choppers for a second. I was getting a little... <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like, they're on the roof, man. <laughs> yeah. But... I think the terroir makes the big difference. You know, of course, if you have two, and also the age of the so wines make the, the huge difference. 
of course, you can manipulate with the clone a little bit. But again, with 45 year old wines, you know, we're dealing with serious stuff there. So yeah. I think the clonal part is very important under younger wines. That's when you make the difference. But in that age, you lose a little bit on that. So in the wine that you're making, it sounds like you're looking for good balance of acid to power and you're looking for clean uh, flavors and a little less rusticity and a little more minerality. Are those some of the same things that you enjoy in wine in general? And are you finding those kind of wines and putting them on the list at La Bernadette or are those kind of separate concerns? Mm. I talk about, you know, I said when I buy wine for Le Bernardin, I always separate that because um, I have the reputation that I'm um, a technical taster. Is that true? I don't know. Uh, I believe so. Look, for me, it's important uh, because, look, nothing is worse when you sit down at a restaurant and I think at the customer side and the sommelier comes to you and I think this is my favorite wine and this is my favorite wine because you're not telling the customer anything. Sure. Except that you like the wine. Right. But, um, and sometimes they don't, customers don't really respond to that. Like, uh, zero. You know, when sometimes when I'm like, I really like this wine, people are like, well, why? Why? Could you tell me why? And again, you know, I'm not a tasting dictator. Right. Um, Although I found that you have a remarkable knowledge of your own list. And when I dined there uh, recently, you steered us totally right. You were like, you know, exactly right on with, you know, I mean, I would think that living with wines that you like is probably uh, not the worst thing. It's a good thing. But uh, look, uh, just because I don't like spinach, not everybody has to sure. dislike spinach, you know. Yeah. Popeye That's is my saying. hardest guest, too. Yeah. Or look, yeah. I've, my personal flavor is short. I've got issue with California, the creamy buttery Chardonnays. Yeah. I personally, does, that doesn't suit my palate. But you find that you do still stock them for the guests that want Well, them. I have to because... Yeah. Um, it's a service experience. It's first of all, a service experience. Secondly, it doesn't mean necessarily, you know, that I'm 100% right on that. Sure. Uh, I, I go a little back in my history on that. Uh, one of my biggest mentors sold uh, a chef sommelier in Austria, sold once a customer, uh, and I remember as it was yesterday, a 76 Lafitte, uh, and the guy had fried calamari, the customer. Uh-huh, right. And I said to him, why would you do that? Yeah, right, sure. And he said to me, what do you mean? He said, well, look, that tastes terrible. And I said, yeah. well, look, we all know that body language uh, always tells you the truth. And no doubt. Um, look at his facial expression. Does he enjoy it? And I said, clearly he enjoys it. So I said, look, you might be right, but do you, are you willing to go up to him right now to his table and tell him this pairing is just terrible? Right. I said, because you can do that, but you will lose. Well, I do that sometimes when I want to try the Lafitte. I'm like, you know, this <laughs> this pairing is terrible and I'll demonstrate. And I pour myself a glass and then, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, but <laughs> basically you ruined the no, whole totally evening. So I learned from that, you know, not everybody yeah. has, look, we have a lot. We go just to steakhouse and then they hear it all the time. People drink, have oysters and drink big California cups. Sure. Now, from a technical standpoint, we all know that's just not good. Yeah. But, but if someone asked you, you people would say, appreciate, hey, maybe you know? I wouldn't do people that. People appreciate but... they put the wine over the food. Yeah. That's okay. Look. So you feel if a guy likes the wine and he likes the food, you're halfway there, if not more. For me, I'm halfway there if people give me the opportunity to work. Got it. Uh, Do you find that that's a problem or are people not at all? I I mean, in your current role, it seems like people would be pretty willing to hear you. uh, Yeah, I'm I'm fortunate on that. But it wasn't always like that. You know, I had to work myself up there, too. I mean, in a way, you made a big shift going from Valse and the Blue Gons (laughs) to Le Bernardin, you know, in terms of prestige. Did you really feel that difference where people were the customers giving you a lot more? Uh, respect and looking for your guidance more when you 
you know, went up the ladder. Not to say that those other restaurants weren't great restaurants, maybe a little more casual, maybe a few less stars. No, the restaurants, I think, were, look, I came in 2004 to America and worked with Kurt Gutenberger. Sure. Uh, Kurt was a big mentor for me, yeah. I have to really say. Uh, he also told me right on the first day uh, that, look, look, you come from Austria right now. Uh, and that actually, when the jokes came into place there, he said, look, it's right now in the beginning, it's not important how good you are. It is sort of, but um, even more so that you get the cultural difference. Americans will have different needs to satisfy. They express themselves different. Uh, you know, the, they have different feelings, you know, and it's, it's a different culture. Sure. And he said, it's not black and white. Yeah. It's just, you need to understand that. So and are people more open here to new things? Oh, totally. What is the it's totally refreshing. Um, in Austria, you run a little bit, or in Europe, you run a little bit more through uh, higher hierarchy levels. Uh -huh. You know, everything History, is a little yeah. bit more uptight. Yeah. Uh, especially Austrians love always to complain. Uh -huh. uh, you know, well, I have a lot in common with that. Well, yeah, but so. they sit back and don't change it, you know, but right, Americans right, right. change that. <laughs> gotcha. And that's refreshing for me, you know, and things are more, you have such, such more open horizon here, you know, Dubai Dune is also bigger. And how did you end up in New York? I mean, what was the change there? Uh, <laughs> as an Austrian, you, you immediately want to go to Wolfgang Puck. That's period. Oh, is that true? Period. Yeah. <laughs> period. Uh, and I tried to reach out and it never happened. I never got the feedback there. Sure. And it could have been a totally different life. You could have been a very tan Aldo song working at Spago and you probably, know. yeah. Or and married to a movie star. Yeah. 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 But no, uh, Nope, not at all. Well, uh, there's still time, you know. <laughs> <He knows>. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm pretty happy in New York. Yeah, uh, there's no question. If, uh, I think. Look, you have to give. I'm a very focused guy. Yeah, I put well, that, my, that comes across. I, think. I put my goals very clear. Uh, I, I try to set my goals also the, the achievable because that's a skill. I heard that you moved because you wanted to improve your English because you wanted to take the sommelier exam in a foreign language. Is that true? Uh, I had to because when I competed, um, the competitions were always held in a foreign language. Or you yeah. had to compete in you it. have to f compete in a language that's not your and native my language. My English, you know, was okay, but never really strong. So that I had always to focus more on my English rather than it was asked. Sure. That was a disadvantage. But I got the feedback from people that, you know, I, I have the potential to basically win. Oh, really? So people were like, hey, look, if you brush up your English, you could really... And you'd already been best on me in Austria like four times running? Uh, at the time, I was three times running. Yeah. And how often does that happen? Like, not so much. Like, Never. Not, not so many people uh, get it I think consecutive one, times. one, but that's it. And what's he doing now? He's like prime minister or something. He's oh, he's a famous <laughs> guy. <laughs> prime minister of the Somalis, yeah. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> no. No, I changed, you know, and I said to myself, look, um, yes, it can be good in Austria, but, you know, you have to make, take the extra mile. Yeah. Are and you seen as somewhat of a hero there? I mean, I know you're associated with the glassware company. I mean, when you go back to people are like, hey, that's Aldo. I mean, I mean, I know when uh, yeah, but that's chefs not, go back, they get a lot of respect in their hometown. I do that too. Yeah. But, you know, that's not important to me. That's not what drives you. Mm, I mean, look, it's certain, to a certain point, it's, it's nice, of course. And you appreciate too, because you see, you know, you've achieved and they've done something with your life. Sure. Um, but I try to keep my ego as low as possible and stay to be humble because it's very often, you know, especially right now, you know, everybody pulls you up as a celebrity and that. Yeah. Like myself, like what I'm doing. Well, you're a celebrity, but... <laughs> no, no, I'm saying you, you. But, you know, 
you, it's always important that you stay with both feet on your ground. Sure. And look, I'm basically a person who just got lucky enough to do, you know, to do. Well, it sounds like you worked really hard. I don't know if luck was. So yeah, but much. you have to look for luck. You have to work always hard. Sure. Unless you play lottery. Right, right. And right. I'm not a good player. Yeah, <laughs> you weren't the winning ticket on this uh, last one. No, yeah. I was had very good. My spirits very, were very, very high. <laughs> but uh, no. So you worked pretty hard to take some of those Somme exams. I mean, I heard about late nights and early mornings. I mean, what would you say to somebody who was thinking about doing that? Would you recommend that for everybody or anyone or you know? I mean, how what kind of commitment were we talking about to get oh, the I had level to level that you I had did? To give up my life. You did. So <laughs> there was no going out because I remember. You know, I used to be on the New York scene and frankly, I didn't give up my life and, um, you know, whatever, no one was like, Aldo was just here. I mean, it was like one day you appeared out of nowhere. Yeah. Like someone had let you out of the cave. You know what I mean? Like he's back among the humans, you know? And, uh, and there you were. And, you know, you, you had won this great award at the top of the profession, best sommelier in the world, uh, which is not just in America, but then you went and competed at an international level and you won and you came back and you were the sommelier at Valse and it was like, intense interest in you uh justifiably so but i think a lot of people didn't know who you were because you weren't really out much let me correct no i was in america i won when i worked at valsi i moved in 07 to liberada and for liberada i won best somebody in the world oh you won while you were at liberada yeah had you already won the american side i won the american while i worked with kurt at valsi got it okay that was my mistake uh yeah, look, I gave up my life. I had to study, you know. And, and for how long were we talking about I here? started, that's actually an interesting story, how life can be interesting. I, in 1998, I did late my sommelier diploma, very late, uh, for the standards. And in 98, I had the first part in Austria. You have to do it over two years. Okay. And the first part is you go basically for one for one month uh, to school all day long, Understood. which is strenuous, you know, it, again, the whole education runs different in America, but at that time, uh, the some education got took over by, uh, a guy called Norbert Waldnick. And okay. he actually was at that day, the Austrian competitor for the world championship, oh, okay. which was held in Vienna. And he invited me during the, during the exams over the weekend to join them basically, um, for the competition. And I accepted that even there, my colleague said, are you completely out of your mind? You're going doing exams and start traveling around rather than f- studying and focusing on exams. I said, I think I'm able to learn there more than over the weekend right now. Sure. And I went there and I learned one thing that intensity during the final, because they were public and there were cameras, you know, uh, journalists, uh, flashlights everywhere, a, a huge audience, the pressure. The pressure and the adrenaline in the air was just uh, insane. And I said to myself, and I shake my head, never ever I will do that. Yeah, I'm never doing this. This is for this is for the birds. No, this is just this just insane. Yeah. And is it true that later you um, saved a guy from igniting on fire who was a writer who went to a sommelier and you were one of the judges? He was at a sommelier thing and, and it, he like lit the decanting candle and he almost lit himself up on his suit and you like jumped around the corner and saved his life. Is that is that is there any truth to that? Uh, he would have burned. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. He would have, uh, actually, I wouldn't say he would have burned, but his uh, suit would have burned. It's actually a very funny story. You can read it on GQ. Yeah. Uh, it was Alan Richmond. Yeah. I mean. 
Would you say stop, drop, and roll is something you would advise for young sommeliers going into the competition process? Uh, yes, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> um, I think it's not about basically, of course, it's about winning. Yeah. Uh, that was for me always the thing, you know. Um, winning is not everything, it's the only thing. Sure. For you. For me. Yeah. Uh, you wanted, you had a strong ambition. I wanted to get it and I put all the effort and all the work in, you know, it's, sure. you know, to want something and to don't do something for it, you know, that's one thing. But if you want something really badly, you have to go for it you and you have to, have to basically it. take the extra miles, what is necessary to get it and to get it done. That means also you have a lot of mental pressure and a lot of expectation pressure from your surroundings. Let me ask you, do you see a lot of young sommeliers with that same level of drive in this country? Or do you see it in Europe? Or I see do you a see shift it? lately. Uh, a shift where I don't know where we're developing. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, people are driven basically uh, lately very often by the fame. Uh-huh. And they want to get the big money. Yeah. Understandable. That's, I mean, those are basic ex- human beings. Well, we live in New York, you know, yeah. uh, that's even more understandable. But if you go to the true artists and, you know, yeah. our industry has certain art appeal on it. Sure. Um, which artist was driven in, uh, you know, basically to get great in their business by money? Right. right. There's not that many. Sure. Uh, and usually when we do talk about those people, it's derogatory. When we're like, oh, this guy's all about the money, that kind of, that's usually what they say about the postmodern guy that they don't like, you know? It's not, you know? Um, I think true artistry comes from passion, uh, from total discipline, and also for being totally grounded. So, you know, I see you as a highly disciplined guy. How do you run your own team? I know you have a large team. When you interact with these people, what's important to you? I mean, how do you connect with these people who, how do you instill that same level of, discipline and passion that you so obviously have it took you to this point you know you got the great awards you got the the great restaurant one of the great restaurants in in america if not the world you run this program you have several young sommeliers work for you when you sit down with uh, these nobody people, works for me well, work good with point me. good point that's exactly what me. i want to hear about um that's what many people say i mean that's probably an american way to express they work yeah. for me look i don't owe Liberta. Yet, sure. I'm working very hard on it. Yeah, any day now. Yeah. <laughs> but, as soon as no. the test is in Austria, you're going to have it. You're like, as soon as the title deed no. is. Uh... Uh, no, they don't work uh, for me. They work all with me. Uh, and I work with them. Look, I can, I'm sort, sort of a mirror in my team, too. I can be only as good as they are. A mirror to your team, yeah. Yeah, because look, uh, I mean, the restaurant is too big. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, it's for, big, but it's not huge. It's not huge, but for me, look, I can't be everywhere. You right, know? especially I, at that level of service. I, I can't, you know. It's right. I I wish I would have, a certain nights I would have a zipper and kind of, you know, clone myself. Yeah. But it's not possible. So I think the most impressive part, I mean, you used to yell and come to people, you know, and kind of push them to the edge. I think those days are over. Yeah. Uh, people want take that anymore. Eric Repair is famous for saying, look, I don't like to yell at people. I like to be humane in the kitchen, but I expect high standards. Is that like rubbed off in your own philosophy? Has some of that seeped into how you deal with things? Mm, I, I'm actually pretty much the same. There. Same guy. Uh, same. And that was always the case, like, or has been for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I yelled in my early stages too, but I noticed one thing, look, just by yelling, uh, what can be achieved? Sure. Uh, basically your whole audience is shutting down. They don't listen to you anymore. Right. 
and you don't go over. And yeah, basically, when I tell the a, jokes and yells, they don't laugh as much. I no, <laughs> but you don't go anywhere. I think it's more of a young these days. The people see more and learn more is look you you have to live what you're doing mm-hmm. and that's where you get it has inspired. to be the whole picture yeah i mean you can't bless uh bless the water and drink wine you know it's sure you can't just punch in for the thing and then punch out yes i mean that's that's the way how i treat it and of course in my team i have a lot of different characters and you it's do. for me important it's important do you want to build that kind of team people who are different yeah but you have to know so no not everybody would like me you know i have mm-hmm. to have certain characters you know who love a specific type Mm-hmm. So that's also the beautiful part. I think what I how does that play out? I give you an example. Uh, when I came on board at Libarda, there were certain, of course you run always with regular customers, and sure. you run always on a certain model because they have certain ways uh, and behavior roles. And look, for me, it's nothing better if a, a customer comes and asks for one of the sommeliers. Sure. Other than for me, because sometimes people would take that like, oh, I don't know what's going on. This guy's coming up and kind of taking my steel. And right now, I'm trying to get in my team basically that everybody has his regular customers his that they look for. Look, they look either for Jared or they look for Irene or they sure. look for David or they uh-huh. look for Katya. Uh, that's important. That's mm-hmm. for me important because that takes so much pounds of my shoulders off. Uh, I know people are very often afraid, you know, of that you might lose the job. Look. Eventually, you will lose the job one way or one the other. Way or the other. Uh, it's just the way how you basically finish it. And maybe there's someone there to take up what you started or not. And, you know, you hold on something which you don't belong anyway. It doesn't belong to you anyway. Sure. Right. So at your restaurant. Um, I mean, you work well, there. It's I, a big I, part me, of you. But I always run it like that. It would be my own. Like it's on your um, place. Is that still a desire for you to have a small place? Yes or no. Oh, yeah. But it didn't. I mean, certainly you're doing pretty well right now, but is there in the back of your mind that you think, well, maybe one day, maybe one day, but I've right now so many stuff, there's so much on my palate right now, on Mm -hmm. my plate right now that um, I have enough. And what about the buying? Are some of these other personalities and voices in the restaurant that are on your team kind of like um, making buying decisions a little different are you saying like oh i know that guy likes to work with that see that's that's now you're hitting a very interesting point because that's what ultimately the new uh sommeliers are always looking for the buying power uh-huh okay and you know power is one thing but power comes also with uh Responsibility. What is responsibility? Because it's always easy to spend someone else's money, but yeah. you have to. Exp- I find it quite easy. Yeah, it's su- super easy. But eventually, the person you know who owes the money, you know, will eventually uh, ask you, like some reporting "Show about. me, please, my stuff." You know yeah, what yeah, you bought. Exactly, you know? right. <laughs> and if that doesn't sell, you know, then you have a little issue. Sure. Um, and again, I want to be you know treated like, or I, I treat somebody else like I want to be treated. Yeah. Um, I expect that. And I get very upset on that. That's actually very com- get me completely out of my calm. So, so when people don't treat you back the way that you expect, yeah, I just don't think that's appropriate. You know, yeah. um, which is fair. I mean, certainly, I'm just asking. No, uh, so that's, with the buying, though, the buying power. Look, I'm happy to give certain things up. Yeah, as long as they make sense, and I encourage those people. Look, I have one uh, sommelier, Irene. She works um, with me since quite a while. Yeah. She used to be at A16 and exactly. has that Italian background. Um, and her boyfriend is a liquor dis- wine distributor. Uh-huh, okay. And I mentioned it to her once, oh, why do you don't buy? And she said, well, what could I? I said, well, look, you can bring whatever you want. Yeah. 
as long as it's good, yeah, and as long as we can sell it, and we can stand behind, it's fine, yeah. As long as you can explain it, yeah. Uh, and has that happened? Has she brought in some things from the south? You know Italy what? Her boyfriend came to me and he said that's actually was a very impressive answer because that's when they learn because that's when they see what buying power basically means because. It's not just to be out, you know, saying, look, I finally have power to start yeah. buying whatever I want. Right. I have also responsibility, responsibility. with that. <laughs> and do you find also, you know, one of the things I find so engaging about the business is it can be a whole lifestyle because you can go from working in a restaurant to being in restaurants to being on wine trips to drinking wine. It can be a whole life. But do you find sometimes that the hours involved in that are also challenging? Mm, that's the passion. Yeah. Uh, well, look, if I would have been a Wall Street broker, I might work less. Might, might. work less, sure. Uh, I don't know, but I see these guys working also nonstop on the weekend too. Yeah. And being on emails. Look, I think whatever you're passionate about, wherever you put your love into it, uh, it will be not very difficult. Of sure. course, it's strenuous, but you know, love can be also strenuous. That's why it's there. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> That's why it's here painful too, you know, but it's not very difficult. Of course, look, I work, people say it, I work crazy hours and they I do don't say that. Yeah. But, uh, I don't go out, out very often because then after work, I have to have a fresh uh, mind and I can't afford, you know, to have a crazy head because I'm drunk or hangover. Right. It really can't affect your service the next day. I oh. mean, less patience equals less service. Yeah. You know what I, mean? I make mistakes then, you know, yeah. I make mistakes in terms of buying because I don't taste well enough. You're not taking the time. Um, I rush. I'm not as bright, not as fresh. I'm not fresh, you right. know, and like, you know, I can't, I don't want to do that to myself either. You, you short slept. Yeah. You just don't feel in harmony. Right. And I love to hang out more with my peers, you know, sure. it's funny, you know, to be, to go to Barreco's place, you know, and have a big summer league outing. Yeah. It's, well, you've been a one or two, I think. Well, look, I've been to a couple, but, uh, Sometimes held in your my honor. problem is, you know, <laughs> since I have kind of this lack, you know, I have a hard time to leave them, you know, right. and then I stay to the very end and then I suffer. Well, also like I find that those things can be some of the people who know each other so well. And if you don't really know the people, it can be a little strange. So you're like, who are all these people that seem to know each other, but I'm here too. Yeah. But look, uh, you mentioned it actually before beautifully, uh, Aldo suddenly went out once and Aldo was there and everybody was in surprise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, really. I remember like, uh, we all looked around and there was this guy. There he was. Like, and look, they, I'm very lucky there. They, they, yeah. Welcome with open arms, you know? Yeah. It does seem like that. There's generally good, positive vibe I think about you and the whole community as far as I can as far as I can determine and yeah I'm very lucky there so what's it like working at La Bernadette I mean take me through a day in the life I mean here you are uh working with Maggie Lacoste who's such she has such strong life force such power in the way that she moves the way she talks the way she delegates um you're working with Eric Repair who's you know legendary leader in the kitchen uh who's you know had a tremendous impact at that restaurant over his his course of his career and maybe an impact on a lot of young chefs and maybe even the understanding of fish in america um the restaurant just went through a you know a revitalization in terms of the front of the house decor and a little bit with the menu and the lounge and development of a lounge what's it like uh when you're working the floor oh you bring up two personalities which we could talk basically on each uh easily a day mm -hmm. 
that would kind of, uh, but to break that down a little bit, I mean, you have two incredibly strong personalities. Um, I mean, Maggie Lecos for me is one of the most impressive people I've ever met. Uh -huh. Um, she can be challenging, but that's every good boss is challenging. Challenges you. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, she has brings so much experience in that. And also, uh, what I find most impressive about her is, uh, I mean, she travels nowadays also you know, she does. more, but she knows everything. And when she's there, she's from in the morning there until late night. And she goes to the gym. She's, uh, she looks at everything. And if you believe she doesn't see something or doesn't notice the smallest thing, mm -hmm. you'll be so mistaken. That's unbelievable. I gave that, this thought I gave long time ago. <laughs> it, Sunk it, in pretty deep. No, I mean, she's, she's like one, she's melted together with Liberada. That's her thing. That's, uh, I just read the book about Steve Jobs. That's basically, you know, that's one. Sure. That's one thing, and they're totally in in harmony there. And that's her spirit, and she's extremely disciplined. I think I'm disciplined, but she's much more. I she's way ahead of me. It's it's impressive. So it sounds like you really do find her an inspiration day to day. Oh, it's unbelievable. I mean, um, there's a good reason why she's so far uh, out there. Ahead of the pack. Uh, totally, yeah. Um, she's very critical. I mean, also in terms of, you know, in, in the service, she observes a lot, she sees a lot, and she analyzes that very well. Mm -hmm. And now with Eric Repair, uh, it's, of course, everybody uh, loves him because of the fame and everything. Sure. But look, he's a very Zen-like person too. He's totally calm, he's very centered. Um, he goes every day basically through the whole uh, Libanada, knows everybody by name. And that's impressive. <laughs> yeah, it really is. A lot of people <laughs> and, uh, don't. You know, yeah. goes also to the dishwashers. And sure. uh, those are the most important people for them because he tells you, look, uh, I know very often the, the end of the line, but if you, if you miss two, you know, it can be, they show you how painful it is and, exactly. and how important they are. And uh, when the glasses start breaking, it starts to add up. Yeah. I and mean, you know, when they don't, when they're not there, they have to jump in and do the dishwasher. It's not the funnest. It's basically, you know, it's a mosaic and every part makes the picture then. Yeah. And, um, he's very focused. He's, uh, has extremely good uh, communication skills. He does. Yeah. I, he I, does. Don't, I don't know. I've he only does. met him briefly. Uh, I mean, he has this, uh, he has one thing whenever he mentions Grüne Wettliner, I'm in love because a fr uh, with a French accent, Grüne Wettliner sounds so much better. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but he loves Bordeaux, right? Isn't he oh, a Bordeaux man? Yeah, that's our thing. Yes, that's, that's, that's what you got. <laughs> Bordeaux goes with everything. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was, you know, uh, impressed. You guys offered so many red wines. I mean, it really is a, a restaurant that is known for fish, but you guys seem to pair it well. We had a beautiful burgundy when I was there. Mm, uh, I mean, look. Uh, I like Bordeaux too. I'm not as much, not as crazy about uh, or in love as he is. But again, that's again the palette what we talked about before. I totally accept that. Me personally, I love, I prefer Burgundies more. Uh huh. Uh, for him, Burgundy doesn't do it. Uh, again, that's totally Personal fine. And with Austrian wine, you know, he's getting slowly into it. I bring him in there. Maggie Lecos, I have already there. 
she lost Austin Wayne over everything lately. Oh, yeah, is that oh, true? Oh, big time. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, big I'll time. I'll have to remember that next time she comes in. Yeah. She comes in, and I, I never know what to recommend. Yeah. Uh, and what do, you, what do you think about the changes at the restaurant in terms of the new menu and the lounge? And uh, how's that coming around? You, you take into it yourself? You like it? You know, I quote your, your chef, Daniel uh-huh. Bully, on it. He said, the change is always good because it keeps the, the, the team dynamic. It keeps it uh, developing further. It keeps gets a certain inspiration in there, too. And that's true. He told me that before in a tasting. And I see it that way. Uh, of course, it brings new problems up. But... The beautiful part of Liberada is um, we have our own problems too, but we're not afraid to encounter them and work on them. Uh huh. And you know, one of the things I guess just to circle back to the wine part of it that I uh, appreciate about Liberada is you have this huge cellar. You have you know fifteen thousand bottles, but it's um there's a it's not a huge list like actual physical size of the listings. It feels like they're kept somewhat under check or under control you know, maybe supported by all these bottles getting older in the cellar and maturing, but it feels like there's a selection of those bottles rather than every bottle being thrown on there or make it bigger. Is that fair to say? Well, yes. I mean, we are fairly, let's bring that, we're very wine interested. No question about it. Is that what uh, most people drink when they go? We're known for Burgundy. Mm-hmm. Um, Burgundy, of course, we're known for fish. So Burgundy, Austrian wine, German wine, f- natural just na- is a natural progression. Um, we work also with certain Barolos or Chateauneuf du Pops. They can work with fish too, of sure. course. And there's different you, kinds of fish. I you mean, breaking on the sauce, especially, you know, sure. we work with 25 uh, different sauces. You do. That's very unusual. Well, for, it is. Yeah. It's very unusual, for, but that's one of our... Especially in the age of crudo, you know. And that's what one of our absolute strength is in there. And that gives me so much more room to work basically with. Um, in the wine pairing, especially, that's I think. So sometimes you're thinking about the sauce in terms of what you might pair up. You know, Eric Bear has a way of cooking fish that he very often, as he calls it on the menu, barely touched barely or touched. lightly cooked. Right. You know, so the sauce brings so much influence in suddenly and changes the whole direction a little bit. Got it. So and then try to be very very sensitive on that. I try not to make a wine show. And basically overpower his cuisine. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, a customer comes in and takes the whole experience. No doubt. And now, giving you just this example, of course, he could have oysters and have a Harlem. Sure. Uh, Nothing wrong with either of those two. Great oysters, great great wine. But both together, you know, the customer might get only a 95% experience. Sure. But you have missing five very important percent because the customer will leave and say it was good but nothing really outrageous right 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 right. and that's what we're aiming for if you have a perfect pairing you want to say wow to add up to more than four now that's basically a relationship you bring two things together and both get better and elevate yeah which i really find you know when it hits it's like super highway and that's then you're not even in control anymore right you're being pushed along and you don't have to understand anything about wine you can experience it on your own you know, right. when something is harmony, you notice it, whether you like it or not, but something you notice it immediately or whether you know it, wine or not. So you're working with this, you know, the f- fish is barely touched. Do you find sometimes that actually less age is better with white wines or do you find that mature flavors are always going to work well? Um, 
It's a loaded question. Oh well, uh, I, mean, I think, think you have you, you have yeah. a um, you have a broad scale to move uh-huh. there around. I think depending on the ingredients, you know, you have here and there advantages with old wines, and here and there you have uh, advantages with fresh and the young uh, flavors. Uh-huh. Now, working with all kind of the raw fish type of food, mm-hmm. you. It's a big category in the menu. Most most likely, you end up safer with younger, fresher flavors. Uh huh. So if you were to just kind of throw a dart at the board, maybe a little younger might be. Yeah, but coming back on your initial question about the wine list, um, I see that very often the people very often get scared, especially young people who come in the first time. You, you feel know, that uh, there's anxiety. I love those people. You do. I tell you why I love those people because um, they're intimidated. Yeah, and then you bring them a wine book with you know uh, which is thicker than the Bible. Right. Then they're completely done. Yeah. And I'll tell you a story. I worked at a restaurant one time. A guy came in with his girlfriend and her friend, and he was so intimidated by the place and the chandeliers and the wine lefts that he left and he sat outside in a car while the two ladies had dinner. Yeah. And he was looking through the windows to see if they were done. I mean, that's how intimidated he was. And I like those people the best because look. Um, they tell you and you notice that immediately you give them a glass of champagne, you know, just to let them relax sure, a little bit. And then all. I tell them, I said, look, don't, don't worry about it. Yeah. The reason why I'm employed because I'm here to help you here to help you. And I will find a wine, uh, which you will like in a comfortable price range. Uh, and I make sure you have a great evening. I mean, and you know what? Those are the people who you get the best emails. That's right. Yeah. They're believers. I and think. those are regulars then. And they might not have a lot of money, but they sure. come once a year, you know, when they can, uh, or even just for a glass of wine, and it's perfect. A lot of people talk about your art with pairings. I mean, I hear it a lot. You know, we had a great pairing at Liberna. Then, when you're thinking about pairings, when you're thinking about putting flavors of wine with flavors of food, and sometimes it's not always wine. I know sometimes you do other kinds of beverage pairings. What's going on? What's in the background? What are some of your guiding principles? Um. A lot of those things, I think, on the weekend in my free time uh-huh. okay. uh, or on vacation when I have time for myself, when I relax, when I do sports, I love to do sports. And the best time and the most creative time I get when I do a love, you know, when I go all day long hiking. Oh, okay. Because um, it's a little bit more strenuous, start relaxing and then you get hungry. Got it. And that's when I start breaking up flavors in my brain and start kind of twisting on things. I did one pairing on that. We have this chocolate uh, egg. Uh-huh. We're known for that. And I found a beer could be very interesting on that. And kind of more of a malty style. I tried it. it was, it's a Trappist ale. And it's I tried Trappist. it. And ever since this combination with people sitting down, uh, they ask for the beer and the egg pairing. Really? It's totally insane. Yeah. Uh, of course, in the, in the pairing, I try a lot. I test a lot of sauces you do during the night so you're back there in the kitchen with a glass and you're checking things out often yeah yeah just check you know how consistent the sauce is also you know does it change how long has the saucier been there in terms of working oh, a long that? time long we time have, right that's another thing at Liberna. look uh, i mean <laughs> i think last year we had a wedding and we had then the night before uh we catered the wedding the night before we had a manager uh dinner we went around the table and at that time, I was four years at Liberada, and it turned out they called me suddenly junior because oh, yeah. I was the youngest team member in the in the management team. Wow. And that's 
unheard of. Right. Right. A couple of people are 17 years there. I mean, that's right. a strong retention. And I think, look, that's Eric Bear's uh, and Megan Lacoste's absolute strength because, look, they try to keep people. And in order to maintain the consistency and the quality. Yeah. Because if you have constantly new staff members, you won't be able to maintain that. So what was that like when you came in? Because I remember, you know, he wasn't your direct predecessor, but I remember Michel Couvreau had been there for a decade and, you know, had made presumably a lot of choices about how the program was to be styled. When you came in, did you feel like you needed to change things up a little bit or did you feel like you needed to adjust the style of the restaurant? I mean, what was the thought process in the early, early? I mean, you bring actually a question up, which I didn't respond before when I came from Blaue Guns and, uh, I mean, I made the tour with Kurt, you know, when I started with working with Kurt at Valsi. You, I opened with him the other place and went back to Valsi. Sure. And I felt the time then was right to move on. Well, I, I got established. Time. Adam Platt gave you that incredible review from Blue Gods where he said, this guy is phenomenal energy and he makes the whole restaurant work. Do you remember that review? Uh, the, yeah, magazine? and I think Frank Bruni was it on top of it, topped it up. Then. Oh, yeah, he did, uh, did you want better? And it's, I came then up and I knew the time was right and given my competition experience, I knew I had the, basically the, the knowledge background and also the discipline to, you know, stay alive in a, an environment like that. And I start, went to Liberada and of course, look, few people think right away you have to change immediately everything. And I think one of the biggest mistakes you can do, uh, that you complain about your predecessor and everything uh -huh. is terrible. You know, yeah. I hear that. I hear that very often. I have sure. to from other people when they say, uh, I have to go through all this stuff. All this which, stuff. Yeah. Uh, look, I totally respect Michel Couvreur. That's pretty brilliant song, yeah. Uh, are we always the same opinion? No, but yeah. I think that's something just normal, you yeah. know? And I th I'm pretty certain he feels the same way too. But generally speaking, I think he's a great guy. I've never heard uh, him say an ill word about anyone. No. Ever. No, I think he's a great guy. Um, he's very good, very, very good. And look, I came on board and basically uh, didn't change for a month anything. Really? Well, that's just, that's always a mistake, you know. Um, it's That's life, you know. If you change right away and make a hard push, it's like a bell, you know. It swings in one direction, sure. but eventually the bell swings, swings back. Swings back and maybe and hits you, you in the head. And exactly, and you have to hold up, you know, to that. So I just checked and checked out my audience, you know, yeah. what are they looking for? No what doubt. are they, what are their needs to satisfy? Yeah. What kind of is the food? Because you don't know the food. I've been in situations where I was like, okay, well we can get rid of that wine. Cause that wine I don't like. And then found out that that was the favorite wine of this regular customer. And they flipped out, you know, uh, that we didn't have it anymore. Uh, I had the same uh, thing, but, uh, the experience basically was even odder. I had when it came out that I move on from Valsi to Liberna. I had people, salespeople, you know, shooting me emails left and right. and wanted to taste me already when I worked at Valsi. Oh, really? Just to you know, to get into, get, into get the, yeah, into everybody Liberna. wants to be in And I said also, place. come on guys. I mean, look, my paycheck is still from, from Valsi and mm -hmm. from Kirk Gutenbrunner, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's not, not yet. fair to use that time. No, I mean, that's, it's just not, I mean. I found that, you know, making a list is so much easier if you have the suppliers on your side in a way. Absolutely. You know. And I think that's important. And especially, you know, 
to make a big list with a, with a depth is uh, not so difficult rather than have a small list and have uh, complexity in there. Yeah. I see oh. that very often in certain bistros. Um, there's one place you certainly know it, Franny's in Brooklyn. Oh, they do such a good job. It's a small list. Yeah. But that list has a depth in it there yeah. and has a complexity in there. And I think that's what people... There's always something good to do. Our restaurant it. industry changes. And I see a big change coming right now in the auction market you do. Uh, with old wines. Yeah. You uh, think old wines are going to be less popular in the wake of certain revelations? or mm, No, I think given the latest news, I think people start looking more to the provenance uh, rather than sure. the vintage tag and the label. Paying attention to where that came from, that bottle. Because there were some issues with forged bottles. Absolutely. It's kind uh, of our Austria 85 in a way. <laughs> Uh, it was a little different, you know, <laughs> but I think that plays a major role. And I think uh, that we will go st- hardly into that. But also, Do you think people are going to get turned off of old wine from this? No, no, no there's no. always going to be a market for there will be always. Um, look, I mean, flavors. aged wine bring, will bring complexity in it. Yeah. But I think what we're going to change a little bit that you're able to buy um, 95s cheaper than 2009s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it has been a strange apparition. And that doesn't make sense, you know. Yeah. I mean... You could get mature wine for less than the current vintage. Yeah, that will change. Uh, you still wear the Tostavin, right? The, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I know it's a good thing for us. It's One very good thing. One of the last restaurants really in America to do that. I can't think of another restaurant where there's so many is wear and use Tostavins. Mm-hmm. Um, and people you? people pick up right away on that. People do, it's, and people identify you with it. Well, of course, you I mean you have a very old-fashioned touch on. In the beginning, I felt kind of strange too, but as I noticed in the first week right away, you know, that has actually, that Tastava has a huge advantage. Have you had, uh, you know, people call out because of chest pain, like sommiers, and like this heavy metal thing is banging into your... No, we had just, just uh, rap stars, uh, you know. Uh, right, right, yeah. yeah, you're just so, you know, you're just so cut and chiseled in your exactly. packs that it doesn't matter. We, have, we can work with the bling. Yeah, right, 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 right. Do you call it that? Do you have your bling on? Oh, I hear it once oh, a day. Oh, my gosh. Oh, you do? Uh, I, sorry, it's new to me, so it's like so hilarious. We, have, you know, we hear that. Who are your customers? I mean, you must get a fair amount of um, special events and and uh, anniversaries, but then also uh, you know fairly well-to-do regulars. Um, the tourist market, uh, people must want to stop into this famous place when they're in town. Do you find that it can be a little bit challenging to cater to all of those audiences in terms of wine selections? No, I don't find it. No, you don't find it. You know I, it. I know it. <laughs> yeah, it's challenging. Look, but that's also the the beautiful part. Uh, what I find so refreshing in New York is it's so colorful. Uh huh. Colorful, not in terms of the the color of the skin. Yeah. It's just you have so you go from one table to the other, and you have so many different uh, people. You know. Yeah. Complete shift. Totally. If it's just, uh, if it's just, you know, you have so many different layers in there, and I think this is fascinating to me. Yes, you have a regular, then you have a high-ranked uh, CEO, then you have a, a person which is totally new um, to this kind of dining scene. Sure. And you have young people, and that, I think that makes it so nice. Did you have just real standout moments over the course of your career where you said either, boy, I nailed it, or the opposite, where there are real moments where you're like, hmm, I needed to take something away and learn from that. I mean, what were some of the real standout moments in your in your career at different restaurants, both in America and, and back home? Whew. I, 
I wouldn't see it that way. Well, for me, I'm always, I'm very, I can make, motivate myself very easily. You can. But nothing is for me more beautiful when I get a great feedback from people who don't know me, who yeah. didn't do a research and found out about me. Sneak attack. You're like a submarine. You just popped up and you made it happen. And then you... Yeah, but look, they don't expect anything. Sure. Um, it just, you know, they get it. Since I live in Brooklyn, I have a subway ride home. Yeah. And I always love to go with the subway home because I can first shut down a little bit and review my day a little bit. Yeah, get into your own head a little bit. And that's when I analyze, you know. And of course, you know, I mean, you get the great comments from my customers, but here and there, you know, you could have done better sure. or this and that. I and feel that way about my own thing all the time. That's where I analyze it. Yeah. And when I go to work too, and I'm not going to make this mistake again. Right, right. Yeah, that's you know, really a learning experience for me. We all work, you know, and the more you work, you do, the more mistakes you make, sure. unfortunately. And then I learned one thing, you know, you have to, I'm not afraid of committing that I done a mistake. It's here and there better, especially for your employer. And I went also here and there to Eric Repair and I said, listen, I'm sorry, I screwed up. Yeah, you're uh, able to admit it and talk about it. Look, it's not a shame to make a mistake. It's yeah. it's a shame to make him twice. Because That's sometimes a shame. I feel like sommeliers are afraid to admit they made a mistake or didn't know. Yeah, but nothing is You're worse than to hiding. Be like omnipotent in a way. You yeah, know? but nothing is worse than hiding. Look, I have I make my own wine. I work with the glasses. I have my wine key on top of it. Yeah, you have your wine key. That's uh, right. I do also help people in you know, creating a wine cellar. But you know what? Uh, when I started doing that, uh, Eric knew about that. Eric actually said, do the glasses, do the glasses, and enforced me on that. They're great glasses. Mm-hmm. I mean, we use them to a lot of success. Yeah. I wouldn't say they're the cheapest glasses, but maybe they're not designed to be. Well, I mean, it's a very luxurious item. It's a luxury item. Item, you know. And they, it's, uh, they deliver on the promise. It's a mouth, uh, It's sorry, it's a hand-blown glass. Mm-hmm. And when you compare them to hand-blown glasses, you will notice they're actually cheaper than they most are cheaper. of them. Is that true? <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you compare, no, again, if you compare them with machine-blown glasses, yeah, well, they then, seem pretty sturdy. Like you, I saw one bounce on a table once, and it was fine. We use them at Liberada. It's you do. important. Yeah, it's important. Look, um, the way how they treat it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're talking about the Zalto series. We're talking about Zalto. Yeah. And I tested the glasses over two years, and I did the craziest thing you can do with those glasses in terms of, you know, traveling and sure. kind of polishing it. Uh, but I did also a lot of study on how they perform in wine tastings mm-hmm. and they perform incredibly well. They do. It's a magnifying glass. Uh, it's, oh. it enhances flavors. It shows minerally driven style of wines. Uh, you get more out of it. The only time when, and I'm being very honest, when this glass has a disadvantage is when you have corked wines. Oh, really? Because it magnifies the cork. It brings the cork out. Yeah, but at least you know, so you but don't serve it. How bad know? can that be? You know, yeah. I mean, at least you know right away. Yeah. Because the worst thing is when someone goes through half a meal and the wine's wine's corked, and then you discover it later. Well, look, those. This is for me lately, and I find that here and there when you have this kind of uh, sleeping cork taints. Yeah. You taste the wine, you prove it; it's okay. Yeah. And champagne is very tricky on that. Very With tricky. air, yeah. you know, after 15 Austrian minutes, the cork comes out. Sorry? Austrian wine sometimes too. Mm, yeah, too. You know? And after 15 minutes, the cork is, you pick it up right away. Said, yeah. And then he said, you look like an idiot. 
Well, yeah. but it's with oxygen. I'm as soon as oxygen, to no, but with oxygen, <laughs> once oxygen comes to it, the cork tank comes even higher. Oh, and no then, doubt, no doubt. And again, then again, you look like an idiot, yeah. but it's basically there's nothing you can possibly do. Yeah, that's why um, I'm always hesitant to say it's not corked when someone says it's corked because you're like, hey, you know, it could you know, ten minutes could really prove me wrong. Yeah, here. no, yeah. I never, I never argue with the customer. Yeah, never. It's pointless. Yeah, it doesn't really win you anything. You might win the battle, but you lose the you war. Totally lose the war. No. Yeah. What's next for you? What are you gonna do over the next year? Or so, What's, I mean, you have so much going on. You have the wine key. You have the, the the wine glasses. You have your own wine. You're doing consulting work. You have a great, great restaurant that a lot of people respect and a lot of people know you. Uh, associate with the, this top program. What might be on the horizon? You know, many people tell me, especially young people, why do you still work active in the dining room? Yeah, and I do. I'm basically. Oh, you certainly. I mean, I've seen you do it. <laughs> I have my own section. I run my own section. You run your own your own section. I don't run, and of course, I go in the other uh, parts too. Um, and that's very often, you know, in America, you know, being active in the service. That's something doesn't have as much reputation. Sure. There's not a lot of like, hey, art of the craft fame right now. Like exactly. this guy is such a great, you know, wine and, bottle opener. And. Know? You know, still people still ask me, you know, you have so many credentials and they have this and this. Why do you still work in the dining room? And they tell you what? I like it. Yeah. It's important to me. Um, I have a great uh, partnership with Liberada. Uh-huh. It's a great fit you for both of us. Yeah. We both benefit. And I feel very comfortable. Mm. But look, um, I'm not a wine, I'm, don't call myself wine specialist, I'm a sommelier. And what does a sommelier? He's in a restaurant. Yeah. And he doesn't create a wine lists uh, because then he's not a sommelier. Then he's a wine director. But I'm a, yeah. I call yeah, myself right. sommelier and I call myself, you know, I'm a chef sommelier. Okay, I do wine lists and that. Mm-hmm. And I like being with people. And I got to in my early days uh, in Austria, you know, we work in season, like when you work in Colorado, mm-hmm. in the middle, you have... I worked a little bit in construction business to kind of kill the time a little bit in yeah. in the between the seasons. And I thought, wow, that's actually a great job because you work from eight to five. If some uh, Saturday, Sunday's off, I thought, wow, that's genius. And then I came to a point after a month or two when I started missing the stress, I missed the people. And then yeah. I saw actually that's what I can do best, I don't do. And that was the most healing experience I've ever had. And ever since I never questioned the restaurant industry anymore. Well, it's clear that you you take it with a full passion when you when you dive in. Um, so you know you alluded before to some of the differences in young sommeliers when you were coming up and young sommeliers today, or young sommeliers in different cultures. If you could say a few things to people who might one day look to you uh, for a job or for inspiration, or might dine with you and and want to see what that was about, but had had a serious interest in wine as a profession. Uh, what might you say to those people? Study, study, study. Yeah, study and study. It's it's enormous has an enormous complexity, and once you think you know everything, then you will realize in the next second you don't know anything. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I still feel today like that. Yeah. Why well, every vintage is a change, mm-hmm. and it's constantly changing. You know. Yeah. Uh, and that's actually the beautiful part on this business. You know, it keeps you. You don't get uh, tired. Yeah. And it keeps you on your toes nonstop. And 
that's one thing. But I think also people should not look at their watches. Uh huh. And uh, you're upset at me because I just checked the time. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, but I think what people have to put time into that, you know. Yeah. I give you a good example. I I worked in Austria and had an opportunity to work in my free time uh, with the uh, with the seller, uh, with the chef sommelier in that place. Uh, he did wine tastings in the afternoon, and I did that every day. And we st- I've worked there very hard. I worked from eight o'clock in the morning until eleven o'clock at the night. Got it. And I had from three to five, uh, from three to six, I had a window where we had a break. Yeah. And that time I spent in the wine cellar to set it up. To clean it up after and do wine tastings. All my coworkers pointed me, you, you're com- full. Yeah. You, you're insane. Let's go out. And you do, that, you do that for free. And yeah. the chef somebody told me right away from the beginning, just to make one thing, you can come anytime you want. You can go when anytime you want. But whenever you're here, this is not your work time. Yeah. And you know what? I took it, said, no problem. I just want to learn. Yeah. And basically I sucked as much, you know, knowledge I got out of him. And he came even to that point that was so persistent that he started correcting my tasting notes. Oh yeah, really? And that was the best thing that possibly happened, you know, because you need people who basically, it's very often misassumed that people think I want to have you knowledge. Yeah. Well, I can't transplant my brain into you. It doesn't work that way. Right. And, or people say, you have to learn me something. I can't. Yeah. I can mentor you and I can guide you right. into that. Read this book, read that, you know. And now do this tasting, do that tasting, taste this, you know. You can't do it for them, though. You can't do it for them because that's where work is involved, you know. That's right. where you have to work hard for it to get there. And I did, I drove up for hours just to go in an hour tasting and drove 10 hours back. 10 hours? No, at, at tastings, you know, where I drove five hours. Five hours. Tasted yeah. there for an hour, went back. Yeah. Because there were the right people there. How many other sommeliers were there in Austria at that time? Was it something that was common? No, I mean, I think Europe is America on that a little ahead in terms Uh of um, how wine is established in the society. Yeah. Not in the open-mindedness. I think New York is very ahead of the rest of the world there. Mm -hmm. But they were a little bit ahead of that. So there was a good amount of sommeliers there in the education. Of course, in volume, America is much bigger. Yeah. Because of the, it's a way bigger country. Who's inspiring you these days? I mean, who's really got your attention? Who's engaging you? Whether it be a restaurant or a restaurateur or someone in wine, a wine producer. Who you're like, hmm, I, I really, I think this guy's doing some interesting stuff here. I'm going to pay attention. Hmm. Ooh, that's a good question. I would think Maggie Lacoste. Uh-huh. Yeah, she's so powerful. She, has she a power inspires body. me very often. Yeah. You, will, you probably have more personal contact with her than maybe most anyone. I mean. Yeah. Um, she inspires me also on a private level. Um, uncertain opinion she makes here and there. It's that I think is one thing in the wine industry. There's a couple of winemakers who I think they're really genius. Yeah. Uh, without calling any brand name right now. But here and there, it's only, you know, young people inspire me very often. They do. 
it's a different generation. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm turning 41 this year. I see when I look back and I, I love to teach. I used to have a teacher education in Austria and I taught people young sommelier. I trained them also in competition uh, with quite success. And I do it also here if I have time. Uh, lately, it's less and lesser because I don't have time. But I hold also the competitions here. Yeah, you I are involved them. in that world. Uh, Andrew Bell. And I organized it, yeah. Sommelier competition. Um, young people inspire me because they show me the fresh passion uh -huh. when they basically just catch fire. Yeah. And I think it's that's always... how with wine that can really happen. That's, you know, that's for me basically, again, refueling my batteries. Yeah. Because I think back where I was 20 years ago. And there I get a lot of energy. And then I pick, to tell you the truth, I pick other people from other um, industries. So who the, stands out? Uh, it reaches the book right now from Steve Jobs. Sure, yeah. Uh, it's a fascinating book, even though he was a quite challenging personality. Yeah. I mean, for, there's a story about the, you know, uh, his, his telling the designer, you know, you made this great thing and you covered it in dog doo-doo that he used, you know, a deeper expletive than that, that. But even people also from sports, I just watched that movie with, with Ayrton Senna, that Formula One uh, race car driver. Oh, okay. I know Formula One is not in America big, but in Europe, well, it's huge. I know huge. it's huge in Europe. Yeah. It's huge in Europe. And he was one of the most successful Formula One drivers. And it's actually great, great uh, documentary. I watched that and it's super inspiring. The mm. way how he approaches, the way how he sees things. And the rest inspires me on a daily basis working at Libera because I'm very fortunate to be around very, very influential people in this world. Yeah. And, and does that ever just impress you? Just the wealth in the room or the power? In the room? To tell you the truth, of course, the wealth is one thing where you look, but to tell you the truth, and this might be strange for New York standards, money brings you, can make your life easy, but it can make your life also very miserable. Yeah. Uh, of course, it's easier to survive if you have more money than no money. Mm -hmm. No question about But I think there's higher values yeah. in life than money. Mm -hmm. Because certain things in life you can't buy with money. Let me ask you, did you ever think um, about going into the clergy? Was there ever a moment where you thought you might have had a religious calling? Because you bring such dedication to things and you have a, there's a certain... You keep materialistic goals at, at arm's length. I wonder, was there ever a moment where you thought maybe a monk's life might be a good life for me? <laughs> I'm asking seriously. And you don't have to answer the question if it's uncomfortable. Uh, monk, maybe not. I wouldn't bring it that way. I think, look, we have so many different things on earth and there's a reason for everything. I don't believe in coincidences. Uh, you can control coincidences very easily or you can reduce them as much as, you, uh, as possible. Sort of everything is meant to be. Yeah. Uh, I think you have to have a red, in German we say we have to have a red line through your life, meaning you have to have a path. And that was always important to me. I think, look, it's a very short amount of time which we have the ability, you know, to create something. And Do you feel that pressure, like you need to express what you're doing before it's too late? I don't want to say it's a pressure, but it's just you have to make before you... Eventually you have to, you will die, you know, you pass away. 
and you have to look backwards. I still have some ongoing discussions <laughs> with the man upstairs to see if I can get some leniency on that, <laughs> that particular exam. No, but um, you want to look back, you know, and you want to say I had a great life, you know, yeah. and that was a great person. Uh, this is just important to me. Uh, is there is there any sense to you that you get have a sense of moral responsibility too. with what you're doing? I mean, too, look right now, of course, people look up to me and I think it's also important to support uh, the young people to come up there too, to inspire them. Uh, I take that very serious. Mm-hmm. Uh, people often email me and I try to email them back as much as I can on that and give them feedback on that. Um, people reach out to you and say, hey, yeah, what yeah. am I doing? What but am look, I doing look, this wrong? is also why I do that for the American Sommelier Association. Um, I set this competition up uh, and there's no money involved for me at all. But it's, it's a boatload of work. Yeah, to, okay. First of all, to get all the great uh, you know, candidates together for, for judging, yeah. get the best people together who do that. And look, I think I owe that to the industry. You know, They gave me so I much. I saw a lineup. It was you, Roger Degorn, and Robert Bohr behind the, chef's, or behind the judge's table. I think that was the names back there. Oh, that that that, I think that was the last one. No, we have at least 15 to 20 judges. Really, that many? No, but there's Raj Parr. I mean, there's leading people in this industry. Uh-huh. And that's important. I think, look, we owe that to the young people. Yeah. Because, look, very often you forget, you know, you were young too, and you looked up to people. And people called me old even then, but, you know, I was always the old man. Mm, Professor, they used to call me. <laughs> then you knew it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but so, that's... We were thankful when we got some information. And it yeah. was that time very harder to get information than it is today. Um, today you have to have someone who filters the information to you. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> that's the trick. Sometimes too much information, but... <clears throat> Do you ever feel like you're not quite understood... Uh, and if so, is there something you wish you could explain to people about yourself or your program that they don't necessarily see? Do you walk away from the table and be like, you know, if they just understood what I was trying to do with that, is there something that comes up now and again where you feel like the message isn't quite getting out to you? Just wish you could have a moment with the microphone and tell people this is what I'm trying to do. No, look, you have to have, you have to realize, um, that's why I build up the team. Um, in that different characteristics also, and I look forward to maintain their own characteristics as much as possible. I don't want to put them on the short leash and that they talk exactly the words how I use, because then everybody would have an Austrian accent. Look, if I have difficulties with um, one table or with certain personalities, I have the ability to send someone else in. Yeah. If I know this one, um, sommelier has difficulties with one table, I can send another one in. Mm-hmm. Which I know. Look, it's it's a chess game. I certainly have uh, more rapport with certain kinds of clientele than others, and it's something I've recognized over the years. Where I have to draw back some of my personality in certain instances, and then put it forward in others because certain people are more receptive to. Yeah, well, that's with me the same too. Look, I mean, but I try to give them as little as possible, basically, surface to kind of you know give them opportunity. Yeah. So. And I don't take that personal if somebody says, Look, no, no, I don't this. take it personal. I just realize that if something has happened so many times that I have to say, you know, these people, they deserve absolutely great service. These, is, these people are not my strength. I've certainly found that, you know. I can't do that because, look, this, 
can't opt out of the. I can't. I, no, I w- would do. I don't judge. Look, if somebody. I see, look, when you work in this industry and when you work also in a country where it just got so young, on, uh, it's just so recent that wine became so attractive. It was the people who don't appreciate as much. For instance, they put ice cubes in the greatest wines in the world. You know, sure. We see that. Um, we see other things too. But look, that doesn't lead me to a point where we judge. No, I mean, it was it's always easy to say like judgment of myself. Like mm. this is just not my strength. It's kind of like when you talk about tennis players and you're like, you know, Sampras has got a great serve. It's, you know, it's the the foot movement that kind yeah. of trips them up sometimes. I know in my own career, certain situations I'm dynamite in other situations. You know, I know that. I might but, explode, you know. But that's actually where I put always my, put my finger on is, you know, on the weak spots. Yeah. It's not important you that try you... try to improve. Yeah, because it's not important. Look... <laughs> Tell in the restaurants industry, it's not important, you know, or it's not good if the kitchen is, the cuisine is great, but the service is lousy. Yeah, well, you lose. Yeah, loses the whole so thing. what do you have to put? You have to put the strength or you have to put the focus and attention on the weak point. Yeah. And that's what I tell very often also in my team, you know, we have a couple of guys who are incredibly good in knowledge. Yeah. But they have to work on certain service skills because... On the end of the day, end of the service, you know, they're not going to score hundred percent, even though knowledge wise they could. Yeah. You find you have different metrics for different staff members on your team. You're like looking for different things for improvement from different people. Well, everybody's different, you know, yeah. that's on the customer side, but it's also on the, um, on the staff side and it's never easy. You know, of course, every night that happens something, you are upset at certain things, but I noticed, you know, it's always easy to come to yell in, in the situation, but the problem is in the situation, it doesn't help. It stresses out the team. Right. It's more useful that you grab the person the day after and talk when about it then. Calm Everybody's calm. You're calm too. time to think about it. Yeah. I think we're going to wrap it up there, but I, I really enjoyed speaking with you and, uh, you know, I wish you the greatest luck, although I don't think you need it for me, but I think <laughs> I need it all the time. You've done, you've I, done I, sh- some... I wish I would have talked to you yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, you've done some amazing, amazing things. And I'm always uh, delighted to hear about what you're doing next. So thank you for your oh, time. Thank you for having me. <laughs> A pleasure. Aldo Sam of the Brenda. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.